Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hopefully you've had a chance to grab a coffee and a drink. Um, I'd like to tell you a little story to start off today. And for this, I'm going to need you in your imagination to go back with me to the summer of 2010. Some of you might not remember that. For some of you, that might just feel like yesterday. But in the summer of 2010, I was a uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 16-year-old lad. Uh, that song that you just heard there, I'm Not Going to Teach Your Boyfriend How to Dance With You, is a bit of an indie pop classic from 2010. Uh, I actually researched my Spotify, my original Spotify playlist, which is called Top Tunes. And I think that song was added to it about 11 years ago today. So there you go. That is literally what I would have been listening to 11 years ago today. But anyway, so summer of 2010, I'm 16 years old. Every summer, I used to go to a youth camp with my church, my local uh, youth group. And we would go to this camp at this uh, really posh school it was in called Moncton Coombe School in Bath, Somerset, in the rolling hills. We'd play a lot of football. We'd jump in swimming pools, covered in radox, things like this. We'd listen to a few talks. Um, but the most important thing about going to this youth camp for me as a 16-year-old boy was that you got to meet lots of lovely young girls from across the country that you wouldn't normally meet at your youth group on a Wednesday night. And most of the girls at the youth group on a Wednesday night, I'd know since I was free. So you sort of were more like, you know, you'd be like dating your cousin, do you know what I mean? Which isn't really okay. But this particular summer in 2010, I was 16. I was sort of, I should add for some context, I went to an all-boys school, so I didn't encounter girls on a, on a regular basis. So um, I thought this youth camp is a chance to, you know, get, get myself in there a little bit. So uh, I went quite hard that summer, I was chatting to as many girls as possible. Uh, I think at one point in the August front of the camp, I was texting five different girls who were all across, the, across England. Um, so I was, I was going quite hard age 16. But um, the thing is, back then, we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have video calls. I didn't have any money. So there wasn't really much way of kind of progressing these sort of relationships. The girls would feel like the one for, for, for 10 minutes when they kept replying with an extra X after every one of my texts. I'd send two, they'd send three. I'd send four, they'd send five. But there was one girl in particular. She will remain anonymous for her sake and for mine. Um, who We were texting loads and, you know, she had a boyfriend, but that was okay. It didn't matter because I, I wasn't being too outrageous. I just said things like, you're just the most gorgeous girl I've ever seen. And I said to her, who do you think was the most handsome boy at camp? And she would say, you. And I'd think, yeah. But eventually, you know, these texts kept going. The X's got longer and longer. I think the record was 21 X's at one point on a text, which is, which is it nearly broke my little Samsung flip phone, I think. But um, anyway, uh, I said to her eventually, I was like, listen, you've got a boyfriend. Um, that's a bit of a problem here, isn't it? So I said, I tell you what, if you break up with him, we can go out. We can go out. So I, I hold my hands up. I repent for the Lord that I did this, um, all of you. And she broke up with him. And then I thought, she lives three hours away. I'm 16. Have I got the time, energy, emotional bandwidth to pursue this relationship? Probably not. So I broke my promise to her and I said, you know what? Uh, I'm not. I'm, let's not. Let's not. Let's not date. Let's not go there. So she'd broken her, I'd broken her heart, and she'd broken this poor fella's heart. I don't know where he was in this story, but he was dumped. They've been going out for two years and dumped just because of my broken promise to this girl. So uh, that's going to be, yeah, that's not one of my highest, highest moments, I should say. I should also point out that my wife, Sarah, I only actually told her this story a few weeks ago. So <laughs> I feel like if she'd known this, you know, five years ago we started dating, it, 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 things may not have gone how they have, but there we go. Hey, so we're looking today, as Holly said, at the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a series of incredible promises to God. And I want to encourage you as we start today that, unlike me, uh, Jesus will not break his promises to you. And that's a really important thing for us to remember as we read these words. So shall we pray together? 
Lord God, firstly, I just want to repent for my attitudes and my behaviors aged 16. And God, we just pray your forgiveness for that girl and for her ex-boyfriend in Jesus' name. And as I speak now, would everyone forget that awful story about me as we hear from your word? Amen. Amen. So last week, as I said, we heard all about, all about the Beatitudes from Holly. We heard about how they are wonderful news for us, how blessed we are. We heard the incredible different paraphrases, if you were here, which kind of hammered home what these blessings mean for so many different people across society. Holly told us of, of who Jesus is, and she said, it's wonderful news because these were the people who were being blessed who Jesus came for. The people at the bottom of the pile in life, but the ones who are the forefront of the kingdom and are welcomed in first. So Beatitudes, complete it, mate. We've done it. Crack on, everyone. What's the point of going back there again? Jobs are good, and let's move on. See you later. Then I'm up here, and I want to speak to you again about Beatitudes. You see, there's so much to this passage. There is so much to the words of Jesus that we hear uh, in Matthew 5. And I want us to really hone in today on what do these wonderful news, what do these blessings mean for us today in our daily lives? In the everyday, what does it look like for us? And that's a bit how I think. I'm quite a practical guy. If I see a spade, I'll call it a spade. Sometimes I'm a bit too blunt with my words, a bit too direct, a bit to the point. And I want things to be done at pace, to be cracked on with. Uh, I'm often someone that gets told when I preach that I preach too fast. People say to me, slow down. And I will try to slow down when I speak today. But I want to ask you also to hurry up when you listen. So if I slow down a bit, you can hurry up with me and we'll try and find a happy medium if that sounds good. Great. So coming in that attitude of being a bit practical, when I approach the Bible, it's challenged me sometimes to, to not just read it and just look for kind of the answers, sort of like this will just solve the problem. I feel sad. Blessed are the, uh, those who mourn. Great. Happy days. Um, you know, solved, fixed, done. But actually, I think with this passage, it's so important for us to look at it in this way where let's, we want to be captivated by these words. We want to be captivated by the living words of Jesus and Scripture. We want to understand more of the mystery of what it is to know God and to go on this journey with him. So I want to encourage you today that as we look at these Beatitudes, what is it that God is going to be speaking to you? Maybe there's something from last week that Holly said that's really kind of hung with in this last week. Maybe there's something that will come out again for the first time today. Uh, these Beatitudes, they aren't just a series of kind of nice moral teachings or guidelines, but they form the start of what kind of most theologians would agree to be the most central aspects of Jesus' uh, ministry. It's one of the most defining pillars. Um, Lots of great movements throughout history have had their kind of defining manifestos that are filled with bold statements. We had Thomas Jefferson, the founding fathers of America, said in their Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not going to wrap. Karl Marx had his communist manifesto where he said that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight that each time ended either in the revolutionary reconstruction of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. And I think that if you took every single piece of advice from Thomas Jefferson, all the founding fathers, from Karl Marx, from kind of all the wise and learned intellectuals in society today, every self-help guru, psychologist, political thinker, philosopher, and if you boiled down their message, their greatest hits, their most digestible nugget, nugget you'd be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. Whilst Thomas Jefferson and co. had the Declaration of Independence, Karl Marx had his Communist Manifesto, Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount, the Declaration of His Kingdom, which kicks off with the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount is a challenging and comprehensive vision for a kingdom that differed from what the nation of Israel, the audience at that time, would have expected from this promised Messiah. 
There are no political or material blessings. Instead, we are told in no uncertain terms in the Beatitudes of the spiritual reality of what the lordship and rule of Jesus in our lives looks like. And it's important as we look at the Beatitudes, as we heard from Holly last week, to consider the context of what we read in the Bible, where it's placed in the Bible, and especially when we look at these four different gospel accounts of Jesus' life and how they differ in presenting Jesus' life. So Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is uh, where we find the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And it's quite an interesting one because the book of Matthew kind of really emphasizes Jesus and his teachings in the context of the Jewish tradition in which he spoke. It speaks a lot of how Jesus came to fulfill the law in the teachings of the Torah, goes into a lot of detail and at great length, as we heard a few weeks ago, if you were here, looking at Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, all different names that that there were, all the given ancestors of Jesus. We hear in Matthew about how there's thousands of kind of uh, prophecies that that, that are given over hundreds of years that all culminate in the person of Jesus. So if you think the Gospels are kind of like the same film directed by four different film directors, and I like to think the book of Matthew, if it was directed by kind of a modern film director, uh, would be Peter Jackson. So Peter Jackson is uh, most famous for directing Lord of the Rings. There he is telling Legolas and the Riders of Rohan what to do. Isn't Orlando Bloom handsome? And uh, Peter Jackson is a gifted and critically acclaimed director with a real gift for, for storytelling, for grand, uh, grand stories. Uh, But nevertheless, he is a director who is incapable of making a short movie. So the Lord of the Rings extended trilogy is 11 and a half hours. He did King Kong 2005. That is three and a half hours. My man even managed to turn The Hobbit, a book that is 304 pages, into a trilogy that is nine and a half hours. And it was absolutely rubbish. It's not as good as Lord of the Rings, is it? Let's be honest. I saw recently as well, Peter Jackson, his, his newest project, he's bringing out a limited docuseries, which we all love, on Disney Plus, about the Beatles. A limited docuseries, normally they're about six, kind of six episodes, about 40 minutes length. But Peter Jackson says, I don't care about that. Two and a half hours per episode for this docuseries looking at the Beatles. He does not care about your bladder control, does he? He wants to give you all of the detail. He wants to give you all of the story. Fulfill it as it was intended to be told in his eyes. And it's a bit like that with the Gospel of Matthew. The theme of Matthew, I like to think, is fulfillment, one of the main themes about this. So that's important for us to consider as we look at the Beatitudes. What does that mean for the Beatitudes? A couple of things. First and foremost, we can trust these statements that we hear of in the Beatitudes. They aren't just nice proclamations, they are promises that won't be broken, that are good, trustworthy, and real, that will come to pass. So let me read them to you now, knowing that context there. Matthew 5, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward for in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we know that we can trust 
Jesus. We know that we can trust that these words will come true, that he will fulfill these words. Just a few verses later in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that uh, not, uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is described as the one who is promised, who is faithful, like in the book of Hebrews. And in Revelation 19, he's described as being faithful and true. So good news, as you read off in these Beatitudes, wonderful news. It will come true. We will see it, but not necessarily now. You see, the tension of the kingdom of heaven, as we've been looking at in this book of Matthew and our groups and on Sundays, is that the kingdom of heaven is both now and it's not yet. We both see some of it breaking out in our world, but we also see a lot of pain and strife around us. So we can know that Jesus is fulfilling the kingdom and we're joining him on that journey. And the Beatitudes are kind of an invitation into that journey of being fulfilled in this tension, this kind of liminal space, if you like, an ask buzzword. And as I've sat in this passage these last few weeks, as I've prepared uh, for this talk, one of the things that struck me a lot uh, in, in these list of situations in the Beatitudes uh, is that they kind of speak prophetically to the path that Jesus lived in his time on earth. I like to think in this theme of fulfillment that Jesus kind of fulfilled the Beatitudes. So the first one, the first beatitude, that blessed are the poor in spirit. So poor in spirit is that kind of state of sort of recognizing your kind of spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's recognizing that you have nothing of worth to offer God, um, but you are so dependent and reliant on him. And I'm not saying that Jesus had nothing to offer. Let's not say that. But we want to say that Jesus was surrendered of his will and, and he recognized the need to follow God. In John 5, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. One of the most classic verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. There you go, start off at 10. Jesus also laments over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. In Matthew 21, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can define righteousness as someone who acts as being, when we act in line with kind of divine law, a perfect righteousness means to be free from guilt or sin, as Jesus was. 1 Corinthians tells us that it's because of Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We'll see in the coming weeks in our groups and on Sundays in, in, in the chapter Matthew, uh, chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew, how Jesus goes about as this king, this, this kind of one who's declaring and showing off the new kingdom uh, through some incredible miracles, some, some incredible healings, some resurrections of people who are, who, who are dead. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus is literally the embodiment of a pure heart, a pure heart that means you have one thing, to do the will of his heavenly father. Whatever Jesus did or said, he did it in obedience as a son of God. John 8, what I say is what the Father has taught me. He who sent me is with me and has not left me to myself. For I do always what pleases him. There aren't any divisions in the heart of Jesus. No double motives or secret intentions. He has complete inner unity because he is in complete unity with his Father in heaven. 
verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Luke 2, when the angels declare the birth of Jesus, they say, glory to God in a highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Later in the Gospels, uh, when Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, one of his disciples, Peter, uh, chops off the ear of uh, one of the kind of Roman servants who came to save Jesus. And Jesus tells him to stop. Jesus heals his man's ear, brings peace to a complex and difficult situation. Verse 10, nearly there. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's fairly obvious, if you know anything about Jesus, that he was a pretty persecuted guy, wasn't he? Uh, in Matthew 27, even Pontius Pilate, the, the kind of Roman leader who, who, who was putting Jesus on trial, said, what evil has this guy done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 11 and 12, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. As Jesus was on the cross for you and for me. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. They shook their heads. Even those crucified with him heaped insults on him. We heard of Jesus' persecution. And the false evils. When Jesus was on, on trial, uh, many, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. They stood up and gave a false testimony, accusing him of, uh, of, of things that he never said he would do. So we can see how Jesus fulfills his Beatitudes. We can see this path that he lived, this life that he lived on earth, that kind of accomplished all of these cool beans. But I think there's great significance for us in Jesus choosing these statements as the very first words to his disciples at the start of this great big kingdom manifesto. So right at the start of Sermon on the Mount, right at the start of Matthew 5, we've just heard uh, in the end of chapter 4, the previous uh, chapter, how Jesus had just called his disciples to follow him. We heard a few weeks ago about uh, what it looks like to follow Jesus, repent, let go of what what you have and follow me. Uh, Jesus calls the fishermen to come and follow him. And then he comes straight away and says, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it means to be in a state of following after me. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. This is the reality of what you've just signed up for, if you like. I doubt the disciples knew as they heard these nice, encouraging words and promises from Jesus that they would literally experience the persecution in the years to come. They were accused of cannibalism in the early church because of the kind of misrepresentation of the, of the um, Lord's Supper, uh, communion, as we call it, that we held together last week, the sharing of the bread and the wine, which they spoke of being the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, people thought that they were actually going to eat, eat people, which was not the one. They were accused of sexual immorality because people, again, misrepresented their weekly love fest meetings. And I'm really sorry, but I, I blame the disciples for that one. Because if you invite me to a love feast at your house, I'm probably going to think there's something not great going on there either, to be honest. They were accused of being revolutionary fanatics because they believed that Jesus would return. They said there's going to be an apocalyptic end to history any moment now. They had their families torn apart because of division in marriages and in between father and son and mother and daughter about believing in Jesus. And they were accused of treason for refusing to honor the Roman gods and participating in worship of the emperor. So if it, this is what it meant for the disciples to follow Jesus, these promises in the Beatitudes. So is it the, is it, it is the same for us today? This is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like to know Jesus, to be with Jesus, and to walk with Jesus. To wake up every day and know that he is with us in the, in the joys and the pains, the highs and the lows. One day we'll know we'll have eternity to share this with him and know that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. But these words are hard to hear and hard to live, aren't they? Following in the path of Jesus is ultimately following the one who walked to that cross for us. It's following the one who suffered and paid the ultimate price. And we have to choose that if we're living a life through and with Jesus, we have to choose that if we're following him through all the harshness and bitterness of this world, we know there is a blessedness to come beyond it. 
I can't explain to you some of the things that have happened in my life. I can't explain why friends were killed in horrible car crashes age 19. I can't explain why I never met an uncle due to the kind of horrible spectre of addiction in his life. I can't make sense of a simple medical procedure that went wrong and left a friend's child with severe brain damage, needing round-the-clock care for the rest of her life. I can't explain those things. I can't make sense of them. And I'm sure there'll be things in your life that are in the same camp as that. But I can choose, you can choose, we as G2 can choose. In the midst of that pain and bitterness and that anger at times, we can choose to take that to Jesus, to walk with him, to share with him. Knowing that as Christians, we aren't defined by the worst thing that we've ever done or by the worst thing that's been done to us, but we are defined by what Jesus has done for us. And that work in us is what this passage looks like in Matthew 5. We can read this knowing and trusting that these promises will be fulfilled. They aren't just poetic words that were spoken on a mountainside thousands of years ago. These Beatitudes are an invitation to ascend the mountain of God, to follow after Jesus, to experience more and more and more of his goodness and mercy day by day. These are promises that are declared that echo for all of eternity. Sometimes for us in life, these are the last thing that we have to hold on to. When we're at the end of our tether, when we face situations uh, where we maybe have to bring peace, where we have to be peacemakers amidst war and struggle and violence and, and arguments at work. Maybe there's situations where we have to deny ourselves, we have to show meekness, we have to choose to you know, swallow our pride, humble ourselves in conversations. Maybe there's times where we're mourning. I know a lot of us in this last year and a half will have had mourning moments about relationships that have changed, loved ones that we've lost, and all the pain and suffering that we've been through as, 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 as a world. And the list goes on throughout that passage. I'm sure there's instances where you've had to display those characteristics. So the Beatitudes call us as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, to live according to the future reality of the kingdom of God in this present world that we're in. Last week, we reflected on kind of where we are in the Beatitudes. Where do we see ourselves? And um, I want to take some time now, just in response, just to kind of allow Jesus to speak to us about these words, about where we find ourselves in the stories, and about what these, uh, these statements, what these statements mean for us today. The Beatitudes are an incredible calling on our life as Christians. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is kind of, this is kind of the job description that, that we're stepping up to. And if we don't know Jesus, this is a great job advert for what it looks like to live with him. These promises, they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be shown mercy. And it's a promise of the kingdom in the second half of those Beatitude statements that also contradicts with a promise of the cross in the first half of those statements, that we will be like Jesus in his sufferings. Philippians 3, the, the great apostle Paul said, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, not that I've already obtained all of this or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That sums up a word, isn't it? So we know the circumstances in which we're all living in. We know the tension of life today, that yes, we have these joys and brilliant moments and, and happiness, but we also have a whole lot of pain and, and confusion at our world and, uh, and despair at times. I think about uh, the, the, the COP conference kicking off in Glasgow today. There's a little civil servant shout out for you. Um, and the, the kind of the anger you see that people have about the state of our world and the confusion we have about what's going to happen to our world, what's going to happen to our physical world we live in. We know that tension. 
So in that tension that we live in, in that kind of now and not yet, of the kingdom of God breaking through, this fulfillment promise that we're given, let's listen to what Jesus has to say to us. And we're just before we uh, sing out loud and worship, I'd just like to encourage you just to take a moment of silence and quiet with me. Uh, maybe if you feel comfortable, you might want to shut your eyes, you might want to open your hands, just as a sign of kind of focus, of attentiveness to God. And as we've sat in these incredible promises from God the last two weeks, what is it that Jesus is speaking to you about? What is it that he wants to say to you? In the silence now, what is it that God's going to, what is it God wants to nudge you with? When God speaks to us, it's only ever encouraging, it's only ever strengthening, it's only ever comforting. So in the silence now, God asks that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, you would strengthen us as we look ahead to what it means to, to press on, to take hold of all which you've promised us, all which you've done for us. God, would you bring comfort to us now?